Welcome to Life in the Pit, a podcast about the lives and adventures of instrumentalists within the wonderful world of musical theater. And now, here is your host, David Lane. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode number 69. It is great to be with you once again. Uh, this is a bit of a strange week for me, and so the, the episode's going to sound a little bit different. Ordinarily, I like to record my guests in advance, uh, like, you know, a week or so. Gives me a chance to, to kind of leisurely edit uh, the material uh, and also promote it. And I usually put out these episodes on a Friday, and more often than not, we'll record the portion of the podcast that I'm doing right now, the introduction, on the day before, on Thursday. Well, everything's kind of out of whack this week, and it's because of the the show that I'm going to be talking about with my guest. Um, I am the music director um, and uh, keyboard two player for Into the Woods for a community theater called Lexington Live in Lexington, North Carolina. And uh, this is the first show that this organization has done as an independent theater. And um, we've got the full pit of 15 pieces. Uh, we're only playing for one weekend, and that is uh, tonight, Friday, uh, May 13. Saturday, May 14, those are 7.30 shows, and then a 2 o'clock show on Sunday, the 15th. And I thought it would be an ideal time to talk to Jeff Saver, who was the music director for basically the second half of the original run of Into the Woods on Broadway. And we talk mostly about that. We don't even cover any of his career beyond that, which is actually quite extensive because he also uh, was a conductor or, or an assistant conductor for uh, Kiss of the Spider Woman, Chicago, in um, End of the Rainbow, and Allegiance. And he's got a lot of other credits besides that. So as you'll hear at, th at the end of this interview, we've already said he's going to have to come back on. Anyway, Jeff is a very busy guy, and it was hard to uh, find a mutual time that we could get this interview. So we got this, um, as I'm recording right now, on Tuesday, May 10th. And it starts on a train ride, uh, for, from his perspective, of uh, heading into New York City. Uh, about the middle of the interview, we're in Grand Central Station. And the uh, second half of the interview, he's walking around uh, streets of New York. And all of that ambiance is there. And, and I think some podcasts would have maybe a problem with that. You know, it's not studio quality, quote unquote. But um, I thought this was a nice slice of real life. So um, the interview, the sound quality is a little uneven. And there's bass, there's kind of constant background noise, but I think that's so appropriate. And, um, you know, as Jeff himself uh, elaborates, it, it's, it's nice some of the things that we keep in there, some siren sounds, some uh, other people coming by, because this is real life. Uh, and this is a lot of what Into the Woods, the story, is about, uh, as, as Jeff sees it from his perspective. And um, so... I think it's. I think this is a very special episode. I really enjoyed this interview. I think Jeff is a fascinating guy, and I can't wait for you to hear what he has to say. Um, and I think you'll agree with me. It'll be great to have him back on in a future episode. But we're going to chat mostly about Into the Woods, 
and uh, just also a few other little things that he's done local to my area. Also, I am rushing the process a little bit because as uh, soon as I finish editing the show and schedule it for a Friday release, I have to unplug this computer and take it to Lexington because I'm running main stage from this very computer and it is going to be needed for the rest of the dress rehearsals and our shows. So um, that is why the schedule, at least in putting this episode together, is off a little bit. Lastly, just want to give a, a thank you to Fonz for once again sponsoring this episode. And you can click on the link in the show notes to get a free trial. Uh, if you have a private studio of any kind, you want to check out uh, what they can do with a 14-day trial. Uh, I can tell you they have excellent customer service, uh, excellent people on staff, and are willing to help you get more out of your business with less time. And now, without any further delay... Here is my interview with Jeff Saver. I am talking today with Jeff Saver, who is gratefully fitting me in while he is uh, on a train at the moment. So <laughs> um, it, you, you have been a busy, a very busy guy uh, recently, but I, it sounds like you're always busy. So <laughs> thank you for joining me today, Jeff. Sure, my pleasure. Uh, yeah, it seems to be uh, anytime I have seemingly some downtime, it gets taken away from me. <laughs> but no complaints there; it's all been good work. Right. Just just to be uh, grateful of your time. There, there's a lot of things that we could talk about, but uh, there's really two things I thought specifically would be great to focus on. Um, you know, just based on some things that I've heard about your experience. So I am uh, on Tech Week of Into the Woods. For a local theater oh called, my uh, God. yeah, <laughs> Lexington Live, and uh, mm. and I know that was your, I believe that was your first Broadway show, and uh, it, actually, actually not my first Broadway show, but it was the first show I got to conduct for Steve Sondheim wow. uh, and James Lapine. Uh, but correct, uh, yeah, I had worked with them by fortuitous accident as most of my jobs were right. um, first on the show. They wrote a couple of years earlier called Sunday in the Park with George. Uh, I was um, kind of an interesting story that I, I won't bore you with, but um, it, through sheer accidents and circumstances, I was the extra rehearsal pianist on that show because they needed, um, they needed extra people so they could have extra orchestra rehearsals because uh Mr. Sondheim was working with a new orchestrator at the time named Michael Sparabin, who, of course, is now an established Tony Award-winning orchestrator. But that was his first Broadway show, you know? Right. Right. So, and, uh, yeah, so, and Into the Woods, uh, I joined um, not even a year later after they, you know, the show only ran, like, less than two years. It's right. funny because it's iconic today, but it was not a commercial hit. Right. But uh, I joined uh, maybe about eight or nine months after the show opened and then uh, took over the show soon after, uh, which was not planned at all either. You know, right. But it was a great honor and a great show, as you know. Have so much fun with it, David. Right. Um, well, I want to I want to dig a little bit. So my podcast is really it's about people in musical theater who are musicians and um a lot of it is 
a lot of involves uh, that interests people is how how people got started. So so you said you said it was a long story you didn't want to bore me with, but maybe what's a shortened oh. version of how 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 did you get to meeting Sondheim and James Lapine and like how did you get into this line of work? Well, I don't. I think everybody else has a different. Everyone has a different story about how they got right. you know working in the theater or something like that. Mm-hmm. But um, I, you know, as a musician, I played a lot of styles of music. I graduated from uh, CCM, uh, Cincinnati Conservatory. Mm-hmm. And uh, sorry about all the noise. Oh, that's fine. But, uh, We're live on uh, location. And, <laughs> oh, okay, great. And um, yeah, have other people talking on here, but I hope you can hear me okay. You're fine. Yeah. Uh, and um, I had... Um, I, I got a tour and that's, that's another, I, I literally got a tour. Uh, I took my girlfriend at the time to see uh, a tour of Bob Fawcett's Danton. Mm. And what, as a musician, what I do, I sauntered down to the pit during the intermission and met a couple of musicians. And one thing led to another, I ended up joining that tour and wow. I toured for a year. That was before I even moved to New York. Mm. And uh, it, you know, Bob Fawcett's Danton is a very eclectic show. So you have everything from classical music to straight ahead jazz, like Benny Goodman sing, 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 to, you know, just the, you know, the kitchen sink. Right. Because Falsy loved to work with a lot of different styles. And then moved to New York. And I got, I was music directing an off-Broadway show called The Fantastics. Hmm. Uh, it was a long, uh, at the time, the longest running show in the world. Uh, second only to The Mousetrap in London, the play. And... Uh, I got a call from a fantastic pianist named Tom Fay. Used to tour with Jerry Mulligan's band, and uh, Tom could barely speak. He was like Jeff, Jeff. Uh, it was like ten o'clock in the morning, and he had like 105 fever, and he needed a sub for a show mm-hmm. that he was doing. It was a John Cander Fred Ebb show called The Rink mm-hmm. that starred Cheetah Rivera and Liza Minnelli. And uh, a lot of other unknown people on there, like Jason Alexander, who became famous later on on Seinfeld, but he was in that show. And he was sick and he needed somebody to sub. So, I, I mean, he asked me to sight read the show. And I would never do that today, David, because right. I was young and stupid then, you know. Right. But he, I felt bad for him because he was ill. And so I uh, went down there. Um, by the way, we're going underground, so I hope I don't lose you, but if I do, I'll hop right back on, okay? Oh, that's fine. Uh, anyways, um, I got a sub for myself. I got down to the theater. It was, it's the Hirschfeld Theater, but it's called the Martin Beck at the time. And I started looking at the music frantically as much as I could. It was, um, uh, pretty involved and the pit was great. So I started playing. I didn't really know who the conductor was, and I just kind of was looking when I could, but I was pretty glued to the page, as you can imagine. And um, at intermission, I'm talking to this um, sax player. He, he came up to me. He's talking to me. His name's Lawrence Feldman. We became friends, but then I didn't know anybody. And I was pretty nervous, and I said, am I doing okay? And he said, yeah, I'm talking to you. <laughs> And that was that was a learning to us. Like you know, if, if it wasn't going well, probably nobody'd be talking to you because they wouldn't be seeing you. You know, right. so I said, "Wow, this is pretty hardcore down here." Yeah. So I got through the show somehow. I don't don't ask me what happened. 
I don't remember. It was an out-of-body experience, and I'm sure I probably had an adult beverage afterwards to call myself. And um, the very next day, I got a call from a friend of mine named Ted Sperling, mm-hmm. who said, hey, Jeff, we need another rehearsal pianist for this new show I'm doing of Sondheim. Um, and uh, he's working with a new orchestrator, and he's a little nervous, and because he had only worked with Jonathan Tunick during the 70s, mm-hmm. primarily, and uh, all the way through, like, Swinney Todd, company, you know, right. uh, merrily we roll along. And then um, he was working with Michael Sterabin on this, so asked me if I would do that, and I said, uh, yeah, I'd love to. Uh, I'm doing the Fantastics in the evening, but I could work with you guys in the daytime. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I said, why me? There's a million piano players in town. And he said, well, did you play the rink yesterday? <laughs> I said, yeah, how did you know? And I said, well, Paul Gemignani was the conductor, and he, he conducts most of the Sondheim shows. And he said, try to get that guy. Mm. So I guess I did okay, and that led into that. And isn't that crazy, David? You know? yeah. So talk about a weird circumstance, because somebody got sick, and because I did, I guess, decently enough, well, I fooled them again, you know. <laughs> well, the, I've I've come to discover it's a very common story. It's it's uh, yeah. I, I know I know very few people that woke up one day and said, "I'm going to be in this show. Um, I'm <laughs> going to talk this person and get there." It's always bailing someone out, or s- somebody connected to somebody connected heard you and you did a good job at that time and that got you a second look. And it's it's yeah. always those stories and. Um, you know what? You know what it is. It, it's really you train, you work hard, and then when opportunities present themselves, you hope you're as prepared as possible. You know, right? Yeah. Now we're just a few months removed from. Uh, well, I guess it's coming up on about a half year uh, that uh, we, you know, we lost Stephen Sondheim, and um, uh, my understanding is, is that uh, you knew him outside of rehearsals. That you had a you had a friendship with him, and just tell us tell us a, just a little bit about Stephen Sondheim from your experience. Well, first of all, uh, yeah, it's a it's it's a great loss, obviously, mm-hmm. uh, for all of us, for the whole theater community. Um, but you know, I actually, David, I don't know if I mentioned this to you before, but I. I spoke to him just about six weeks before he passed. I was in Winston-Salem yeah, doing others. And I had uh, done a coaching and we had been working on um, some various material and some of Steve's work. And I was just thinking, how's, I wonder how he's doing, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I gave him a call and he picked up and um, he was in a great mood. He was happy that, you know, Westside had just opened and the films and company was being revived and and he was working on something new and he was excited about that. He was in great mood and, and he says, Listen, I don't come into the city much because of COVID, but you know, please call me when you get in, maybe we'll have dinner. Yeah. And so this passing was very it, it never mind the the icon that he was, you know, when you just talk to somebody and they're suddenly not there, it's so jarring and so upsetting so yeah part of me is still in denial that he's not here but but his music is here and his work is here and 
and David that we lived in his time. Yeah. I think the loss, and I don't think I'm exaggerating because I'm talking to other theater people. Yeah. And and I, I thought, oh, after a while, I started thinking this is what must must have felt like when people who were alive when Shakespeare was or when Beethoven was in their time. This is what this must have felt because he was truly a titan. And they don't come along every right. generation. They really don't. They come up very seldom. And he was that for theater. I mean, he just, he was so experimental. He was never wanted to bore himself by doing the same thing. Always tried new things. And, you know, even a failure, a financial failure by, by Sondheim was an incredible uh, artistic experience for everybody and um, usually shows that people catch up with, you know. I mean, look at Into the Woods. It's exactly. uh, become a show like everybody does. And, and we didn't run three years and the show never paid back. So it was considered a financial flop. Right. Which is ironic because I used to get backwards from him. <laughs> and right. it said House of Hits. <laughs> so that shows you his humor right there. Right. <laughs> Um, you know, it also occurs to me it might be the end of an era uh, because, you know, I think, you know, Sondheim was one of several people of his generation who would write very harmonically daring shows, a lot of clusters, a lot of very dissonant chords um, and rhythmically complex. His influences were, were you know, classically trained. Right. I'm not sure how many people could present a show that has the harmonic language of his now that would get a look from, you know, a serious producer is like, there's like, there's a few like Adam Gettle, I know, but I, 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 it seems like producers like to play it more safe now, you know, with the material, if it's going to go on Broadway, but uh, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. Is that your perspective? Are we in a trend change? Um, forgive me. Um, oh, sure. Uh, as I'm talking to you, I'm sort of packing up because the train's pulling in the Grand, Grand Central right now. Right. Um, I think that um, theater has always been risky. Um, right. You know, everything is, you know, you say compared to what? Right. And you have to remember that the economics was different, but it's a business. They call it show business. Yeah. And nobody does it. Um, to not make a buck too. Because the thing is, even in film, if you do a film, you can you used to make it back in DVD sales or streaming or something, you could get some revenue. But you put that many today, million dollars up, in the, and it never comes back, you know? Right. So it's a, it's a huge investment. And that's why people say you got to be crazy. You can make a killing, but you can't make a living. Right. <laughs> But I've sort of done the opposite. I, don't, I haven't made a killing, but I've made a living. Right. Um, and um, forgive me as I'm getting off here. Oh, no problem. But okay. I will say that um, today, David, it's more risky because shows used to try out out of town. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, take the era of, well, really up through the 60s, um, even into the, no, well into the 80s, uh, a show would try out out of town. So, uh, take a show like Oklahoma. Um, Oklahoma played three or four cities before it came into New York. Nobody um, was like hearing about the show mm -hmm. or hearing much about the show. Like Oklahoma used to be called Away We Go. That was the name of the show. 
Yeah. The song Oklahoma didn't go in until the last second. Right. And uh, things change. So, you know, and that's what shows do. Yeah. People, they'll do like Into the Woods or Camelot. You don't see the, um, you don't know the song Boom Crunch. That wasn't Into the Woods. That got cut. There's an extension of any moment that got cut. Mm. You know, they're just pruning and pruning. Yep. And things are cut and things are added. And you're literally making, you know, you can say a work of art, but you're making something new. Mm -hmm. Then you put it in front of audiences. And that's the other really important piece of information. Because you think it's okay, but the audience always tells you the truth. Yep. They'll, they'll tell you what, and that's very important in any writer. Uh, John Kander said on his first show, this was the show before Cabaret, uh, Floor of the Red Menace, jo- uh, George Abbott was the director. Yeah. And he said, who's going to, uh, first preview, who's going to sit with me? Yeah. And then he sits down in the audience, John sat with him, and he said, this is where you're going to learn. Mm-hmm. And he's right. And that's what the audience will tell you what's working, what's not working. But it's risky because it's it's more expensive now. I mean, a show like Wicked, uh, that's a huge production. Yeah. And to, uh, I think in its time, it cost like between 10 and 12 million dollars. Today, it'll be over 20. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And let me remind you that Wicked didn't get great reviews. Right. Uh, but still was able to garner an audience, I think mostly of young t- teenage girls at the time. Right. Um, and, uh, and I mean, it's still uh, not only running, but it's a big hit. I'm going to try to get to a quiet place out here if that's possible. Oh, it's fine. It's nice seeing the uh, city in the background. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, my town. It's nice yeah. to be back. I haven't, I haven't been there since 2018, I think, so... <laughs> great yeah no it's great i love it um Um, yeah i was gonna say another thing uh about stephen sondheim that i've heard and i think it was made uh, abundantly clear in the the tick tick boom you know film on netflix is that he was very the one about jonathan jonathan larson yeah he was he was very he was very generous with young artists you know oh my god yeah yeah so much uh you know i have to say steve and his generation Mm-hmm. Sheldon Harnick, Jerry Bach, uh, John Kander, Fred Ebb, uh, that whole generation, you know, they all felt so fortunate to do what they do. Yeah. And and why not pass it, pay it forward? They're all, every one of them. And Steve particularly had a, he was not only great at the things we know him to be great, but actors loved him, musicians loved him because he gave the best notes. He was like a great teacher. Yeah, uh, he could. He was like Lenny Bernstein. Couldn't help but teach. Right. You know, every everything was sharing. Yep. And he and Steve was so articulate that you know there was no guessing. You knew exactly what he wanted, and if you didn't, you just asked. He was so so wonderful that way. But for writers, you know, the only time he wouldn't listen to something is if he was writing himself. Right. Uh, because he would be afraid that he would steal. Right. Uh, and he, t- he told everyone that he told Jonathan, he told me, you know, all, any writer. But uh, aside from that, he would absolutely check things out. He would listen to things and give you his honest appraisal. 
just like his teacher did, which was Oscar Hammerstein. I'm sure you must know. Oh, yeah. And uh, yeah, he was all of that, like like you saw in Tick, Tick, Boom, very true, um, very generous and uh, would do anything to um, help young people. Also, he knew how difficult it was. You know, he, he just thought none of his stuff would get on today. Nobody would take a chance on his stuff. Mm. But he's uh, a, a big piece of advice he gave all writers, and that is try to get your work seen yeah. anywhere. Right. Even if it's in a basement or a church or anywhere, just make sure you do whatever you can to get your work seen. Right. Very important. Yeah. So I, I had to pass that on to you for other people that might be writing. Right. Because quite frankly, teaching is my passion too. Yes. And it's just paying it forward, you know, because right. there will be some, somebody that will take a chance on you. Yeah. It that's will true. happen. I, I, I was trying to look up and, and see if I remember this correctly. I, I think, I, th I think it was Stephen Sondheim. He was one of his teachers was Milton Babbitt. And I don't remember if I oh, was yeah, correct. For a minute, yeah. Yeah. Sure. So it's, I always, I always found that funny because the guy who's most famous in history for writing an article that says, who cares if you listen, <laughs> it, you know, one of his most famous students is someone who really cared if you listen. <laughs> well, you know what? Take everything. You must know this as a, as an artist yourself, yeah. take everything with a grain of salt because I'm sure Milton may have written it and said it, but guess what? He yeah. changed his mind. Right. <laughs> uh, he certainly did. And, you know, Milton was, uh, you know, Babbitt was one of Steve's many influences, but, but he also said that Babbitt was a frustrating songwriter too. Hmm. Uh, and he, he wanted to write a show. So I think he, I think he did care. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's, my guess. that's true. Um, anything, any special memories of your time on Into the Woods? Uh, just being on that first run, any, any special moments that stand out when you think back? Yeah, so many actually, but you know, it's interesting that we're talking about Into the Woods because I was just on a, I just got back in town yesterday from a tour uh, in the Midwest, actually, we were in like Texas and Oklahoma, and sorry about all the noise out oh, there. Fun. I don't know if you can hear it, <laughs> but um, but uh, we we were in St. Louis, and I guess about three hours away is uh, Springfield, Missouri, and two of my friends that I hadn't been in touch with in a while, I got back in touch with Bob Westenberg and Kim Crosby, and Bob. Um, Bob was the original Cinderella's Prince and the Wolf. Yeah. And I, I had also worked with Bob on two other shows. I'd worked with him on Sunny in the Park and also a wonderful show I loved conducting called The Secret Garden. Yeah. Uh, he was on. And uh, Bob is teaching at a college there and his uh, wife is Kim Crosby and she was the original Cinderella. They met on the show. Yeah. And they actually fell in love. And, you know, they were having babies up in Washington Heights while um, I was just courting my, my late wife, Mimby, at the time. And so mm -hmm. we, we were great friends. And they're, they're just wonderful, wonderful people. But they were great. I mean, I remember him 
she had the best fall. You know, she has to take that prat fall. Oh, yeah. And I would just marvel how she did it and didn't break her neck. I mean, she like, you know, she wouldn't hold back. You know, she just could fall so brilliantly. I know that's an odd thing to say. Right. It's like, what's the... What's the great acting moment? Oh, your fall, maybe. You know, it's like. Well, this has been one of those shows where I have been in a lot of the blocking <laughs> sessions. You know, so uh, so I was there when our director worked with our Cinderella on how to fall. You know, and yes, with exactly. slow motion. So it's, it's yeah. So I completely understand. Um, yeah. Yeah, but I, but in terms of uh, specific memories, uh, I'll tell you a funny thing. I happened to. The pit, that pit at the Martin Beck, it has kind of a lip. It was unusual. We had uh, behind us uh, what's called a passerelle, at least on our production. Yeah. And a passerelle is a, basically a sort of little runway that came right behind the orchestra pit that the actors could come out on. For example, Little Red would have this experience, you know, with the wolf, and she comes out and sings, I know things now. And she came out on the passerelle and sang it. And several of the characters uh, did that. And, of course, they do on the end end of the first act. Mm-hmm. I remember having uh, the witch. I'd have Bernadette behind me and, and Kay McClellan and Lauren Mitchell. Yeah. And they'd have their, like, walking sticks. And uh, sometimes I would pull on the stick, which you're, you shouldn't have your conductor do, probably. But right. Me- messing around and Bernadette would kick me or something, you know. Mm-hmm. So th- those were little fun things I remember. But, um they were, they were just so professional, yeah. so fun, uh, and uh, really, really lovely. But I'll tell you, the actor I learned, one of the actors I've worked with that I learned so much from, and we all did, was, uh, may he rest in peace, Tom Aldridge. Mm-hmm. And Tom was our original narrator and um, uh, mysterious man. Yeah. And he is not really known as a singer, but uh, he's a great actor and his sense of timing. We all loved him and, and we respected him. And I just learned how to breathe with actors from him, this pacing and the way he would do. I, it's hard for me to describe it. Yeah. Uh, but w- when I moved to the city, I was also playing classes for Uta Hagen. Now and then she would add music and I didn't really know who she was at the time. Right. So my ignorance was bliss. But I learned a lot. Um, and uh, Tom taught us a lot. And of course, incredible Joanna Gleason, who played the baker's wife. I mm-hmm. mean, she's just, she was born to play that role. Yeah. And everyone copied things that she did because, because they worked, yeah. because they were so good. She was so natural with it, so real. You want that as an actor, you know, almost more than the musical values. You know you're going to get the musical values, but you cannot separate the music from the lyric, from the story, from the character. And with, with Steve and with Sheldon and with Tanner and Ev, uh, all these people, character comes first. Yeah. And what are the needs of your character and how are we going to get there? So sometimes I would hear an actor say two words and I would say, uh-oh, they're, they're struggling today or they've got a cold. And I've got a sub clarinetist in today, but she doesn't know that. And you have to make it work that day for that audience, you know? Yeah. Um, You know what? I'll share one story with you that I actually share with my students, David, because Mm -hmm. it's, um, it was such a learning curve. I have to say that, you know, when you're doing a show, um, usually in the community or school, 
you're lucky to get one or two weekends, you know, and that's it. Right. But when you're doing a show eight times a week, you're a human being. And sometimes people can get a little bit lazy or go on automatic pilot. You know, it's challenging to keep it fresh. Yeah. And so I, it's hard to describe, but as a conductor, you can feel your audience. You can each show is different and you can breathe with them. Uh, the, the way laughs land or don't land, the way a scene lands, you know, it's a different animal. Uh, Roger Hammerstein wrote a song called The Big Black Giant from, um, uh, oh, what's the show? Uh, Me and Juliet, not a hit show, but it was talking about the audience and how that big black giant uh, changes every day, you know, so right. true. But with the pastoral, it distanced me a little bit, and I almost never saw the audience. Obviously, I'm facing my musicians and facing my cast and my people. But I was doing the scene in the second act. Uh, well, I, I always look at it as a scene, uh, the no one is alone thing, yeah. because uh, I remember very specifically uh, Steve saying to uh, Chip Zion and um, Kim Crosby, our um, baker and uh, Cinderella, that you have one job, help the young people. They're, they're hurting. Be a parent. Help the young people. Be present. Mm-hmm. And she has to be. Because I think Little Red has that first, well, you know, uh, mother or grandmother, uh, somebody would, would feel bad about these circumstances or something, you know, because of the way she speaks. But she's hurting. And her first lyric, it could have been dialogue. Mother isn't here now. Now you're on your own. But you're not alone. I'm here with you. I'm present with you. Mm-hmm. I will take care. I will not leave you. And the acknowledgement that all of us make mistakes. So. I'm conducting and I've got this beautiful chamber orchestra, you know, I mean, great musicians. Yeah. I mean, that, that it was an honor. You, you don't, you don't conduct them. You work with them, you know, yeah. you collaborate with them. It was, uh, we just make music together. We all breathe together. And it was such an honor for me to be with those um, great people. But I am doing this and I, I spy this little girl and her mother in the front row, just mm-hmm. accidentally. And I see, See a little tear. Yeah. Sorry. All these years later. Yeah. And I get choked up. And I thought, I'm holding this little piece of wood. Mm. I do this eight times a week, but we have such a responsibility yeah. to be present every moment because there's going to be somebody out there that doesn't know this piece, doesn't know what I don't care what piece you're doing. You think, oh, everybody knows this or whatever. Not true. You have to do everything. Every, I don't care if you're doing a Woody Herman chart or a Bad Jones chart or a, or you're doing Mahler 7 or you, and you think everybody knows. No, right. you're presenting. It's a new piece of work, new living, breathing piece of work every moment. And I remember talking to them after the show. I, I'm thinking, you know, I'm holding this piece of wood, but we have such a great responsibility in doing what we do. Yeah, it's a it's a responsibility and an opportunity to share this incredible work. I mean, God, what I mean, uh, what an honor to be alive to do what we love to do. Um, and I remember talking to her and her mother after, and I and she was like twelve or something. And and I, I said, did you like the first act better or the second act? Because they usually like the first act, you know, right. and everything ends up nicely and all wrapped up in a bow. 
and uh, she surprised me, and she said, "I like the second act better." Mm. And I said, "Whoa!" Yeah. <laughs> and I said, "Why?" And she says, "Because it was real." Yeah. The truth. And I thought, and I said, I think I said something like, "Mom, you saved your kid like a lot of." you know, butts in therapy or something, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Just you, not the answer you, you, you know, expected, I, you know. I've I saw this show live twice and also I saw the the video with you know you know of the on the PBS, you know, I've seen that before. Uh, and every time I like the first act better. But now that I'm doing the show as a music director, I like the second act better. And and it's, you know I'm in my forties now and I think that makes a difference. You know, just you know, I just look at it as one big line. I don't conduct songs. I conduct acts. Yeah. I conduct, you know, the entire line of, of the thing. Because, and you know, I got to say, even as a kid, when, you know, my mom was reading me a story and, and they'd live happily ever after, right? That's what the stories do. They say, well, I always wondered what happened to this guy and what happened to this, you know, character. And I always wondered, and I love the idea that Stephen James uh, took that idea of, well, this is what happened af ever after. Mm -hmm. And real life things happen, you know. I mean, people get dismayed and they get, um, you know, people's bad circumstances happen and there's death and there's, you know, people have affairs and humans are imperfect. And what do you do when those things happen? Uh, and uh, it's ironic how uh, pieces like Into the Woods still have their resonance um, with, you know, the royal family at the time was the politics of the day. And we were in the middle of an AIDS crisis. Yeah. And it was awful. And the, and the government was looking the other way. They looked the other way until Rock Hudson got sick. Mm. And they tend to look the other way. And, uh, and our responsibility is to not look the other way and to take care of the... I think that's one of the big messages of Into the Woods is community responsibility that we are responsible for one another mm. and uh and that is something that you know the new york scene it's a very small tight scene and when things like that happen when the aids crisis happened when i conducted a big concert shortly after um, the sandy hook tragedy yeah uh it was an all-star event uh in fact we did sunday with the uh, newtown high school and steve and uh, michael let me have the they, they were singing that song and and we got all our orchestrations for free had a huge choir uh michael Cerberus did it he had done it we had brian stos mitchell and christine but people show up yeah they show up for one another and that's into the woods you know and it's about parents and children right you know? Um, I guess one last question about Into the Woods is, is yeah. um, you know, I'm conducting it with a 15-piece pit. I was wondering, is that how is that yes. is that the same thing that you had, or has it changed for it the? It sounds it sounds very similar. I mean, it was uh, very unusual and wonderfully so in that um, the three read books don't have a lot of doubles, and that's very uncommon on Broadway. Right. Uh, I assume it's still like you know just one double, you know, flute piccolo. But then it was clarinet and bassoon, great players. Yeah, so it was really like a chamber orchestration: two French horns, one trumpet, one very exposed trumpet. You know, yep. uh, uh, a little bigger than a string quartet. We had two violas, and uh, you know, with a lot of shimmer effects, especially in things like Steps of the Palace. And well, that sounds identical. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, and we have you know piano and uh, 
a synth for, um, you know, effects. Yeah, now I am doubling. I'm conducting and playing the synth, and, and for the most part, kind yeah. of modifying it so I can play it with one hand, but there's a few places where I got to get two hands on, and, uh, and it's kind of funny. Do you do- do you do the cow gulps in there? Yep, yep. In the first act? Uh, yeah, we have a wonderful sound designer that found a great swallow gulp sound and goes in there, and I found the baby crying, uh, a squish yeah, sound. Yeah, the second act. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah it's and delightful also, orchestration, isn't it? Yeah, but she also gave me some footsteps so that she can overlay, like, some, you know, shrubs being destroyed and wow. things. So it's it's very it's, fun. So you do all that. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I didn't have to do that. Now, it's <laughs> kind of funny. The the uh, the keyboard one is tacit on agony and agony reprise, and I had this two-handed harp stuff. Oh, really? So we finally said... Hey, why don't you take the why don't you take the harp part? And so he's he's inserted that, so I don't have to play that one <laughs> because the strings are going bum 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 bum. Yeah. the barcarolle. Yeah. You know, honestly, the piano did play there, but he played very softly. Oh, okay. So I I'm sure Tunic is fine. Just uh, as Jonathan Tunic's orchestration, I'm sure he's just fine with it being right. you know uh, like a string ensemble. You know, but that sure, you know. Uh, well, and you know we did we didn't use a real harp on that unfortunately right. I forget why mm-hmm. but we did on Sunday in the Park with George we had a real harpist and that was so great you know? right but now it's great you're gonna have a ball oh it's it's <laughs> a lot of fun we've had we uh, we add the orchestra to the last two dress rehearsals starting tomorrow actually as of this interview oh, uh, and we've we've done one rehearsal we've done a sits probe um, now uh, so one more thing I want to to chat with you about is you know we as we mentioned before we started recording you've you've come to my area a few times to Winston-Salem and you've uh, conducted at North Carolina School of the Arts and you've done next to normal and you've done Heather's and I was suggested to contact you because we know a lot of the same musicians. In fact, Taiki Azuma was in Heather's. He's my flute player for Into the Woods. Uh, <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. he, he's so great! Yeah, tell him, tell him to have so much fun. Uh, who else you got on there? Do you um, have um, we had uh, what's his name? The the violinist. Uh, he I wonder would, if he's, yeah, uh, Char- Charlie Schaefer was slated yeah. to come on, but but a, a months in advance. But then he he had something come up a couple of months ago, and he right, so yeah. I had to go with someone else. Um, yeah, tell Charlie he's missing out on a great show. <laughs> oh yeah, I think he got to play in Elon uh, at Elon University, which is another oh, cool. place nearby. Uh, a few months ago, so it, th- there's a lot so of people doing it this year. <laughs> um, yeah, there. Yeah, one of my my very first guests on this podcast uh, is a mutual friend of ours, Alan Beck, who played guitar, and he was the one who told me I should talk to you. And Alan told me something. So I did I did not get to see Heather's, but he told me, Mm -hmm. and I think Taiki agreed that of all the pits that he's played, and it's been about thirty years, he thought that the the pit for Heather's might have been the best pit experience overall he's ever had. And I think he said it wasn't just the quality of players because we've had a lot of pits with quality players, but he, he credited your your energy and your personality. And listen, it, it was it wasn't that that's very kind of them. But, you know, you know this, Dave, uh, and you, you're only as good as the players that are surrounding you. Yeah. And I was honored to work with those guys. Those guys are like top of the line. Alan is a, he's just a monster player. You know, I mean, you just like, you know, and he does his work. And so, you know, 
I'll, I'll tell you something I learned actually. Um, I don't know. I uh, probably didn't mention this to you, but I was very um, honored to work with um, when I was doing Into the Woods. I met uh, Lenny Bernstein. I was working on a thing for his 70th birthday at the time. Tanglewood, and we became friends, and I started studying with him. And obviously, that was a great experience. But I was doing this thing he had asked me to do uh, at Juilliard. Uh, they, um, I guess they lost, uh, like a student was supposed to prepare uh, Appalachian Spring. And Bernstein calls me in the morning, uh, Sunday morning, I'll never forget. And I was like, don't you know a musician? You know, who's up on a Sunday morning, you know? Yeah. And he said, do you know Appalachian Spring? And I said, I, I do. Uh, he goes, can you fill in today? Uh, we lost the guy. And I said, well, why don't you do it? You know it. You know? <laughs> I literally said that to him. And he goes, yeah, I, I can't. You know, I have to sort of moderate a little bit. So sorry about the siren in the oh, background. And so I'm getting up there. And, you know, I was a young conductor. The ambulance is just going by now. Okay, okay. Anyways, um, I'm conducting it away. And the orchestra's playing great. And I'm like cueing everything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm also shot out of that cannon because, you know, I hadn't, hadn't really, I knew the piece, but I'd never conducted it before. And, you know, so I was just reacting. And as I'm conducting, Lenny taps me on the shoulder and he whispers in my ear, do you like the way they're playing? Mm. And I thought that was a really odd thing to say. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you know, whatever I'm doing. And I said, yeah, I like the way, yeah. And he said, then let them play. Mm. And what I didn't, I think what he meant was he, he gave me the trust in myself to let me do what I do to feel, and that I didn't have to micromanage and yeah. give every single cue. They know it. They know it. Just make music. Yeah. Just make music. And part of making music is letting the musicians do what they do, letting your actors do what they do. And that was maybe the greatest lesson he could have given me, you know, that this is a collaboration. It's like when you're playing chamber music or playing in a jazz trio, like I was just touring with this fantastic group of women from Nairobi, Kenya. Mm -hmm. And it was so much fun. And we were playing this room in St. Louis and I had a great bass player, a great drummer. And these three crazy ladies that are just fantastic. And I just, continue to learn by listening to that we are just having such a great time and that's what you do you you all listen together you all work together and it's such an honor to do what we do yeah if it's not fun if it's not fun what's the point you know right <laughs> i had a musician friend that was like no man it's uh when something's too hard he goes life's too long you know <laughs> Right. That was the great Wally Harper who used to uh, accompany Barbara Punk. And I always quote him, life's too long. You know, you got to enjoy yourselves, you know. I've always uh, wondered when you when you work with great musicians, you know, they're they're still expecting some critique. What are what are like some common things that you're listening for to help them take their very good to great? Well, you know, obviously you know, intonation is important, making sure that everybody gets a good A and that every, and that you really tune correctly. That, you know, that, these are just basic things. Of course, you would do yeah. this 
in any community orchestra or any just uh, everybody listening listen yep uh listen to each other like i i remember having a, a sub on a, a viola book and she was like glued to her page and i said hey you gotta listen and you gotta watch my upbeat here because i have to breathe with them and you think it's going to be the same and it's not yeah give me a little flexibility here because I need to see where my actor is emotionally. It may be different. So making sure that my players are present and ready for anything. And if there's like each show is different. Yeah. Each uh, concert is different. Every, everything changes up. So making sure that people have the information that they need. Right. Uh, and that's my job because by and large, the players and the actors around you, they want it to be wonderful too. Yeah. So it's your job to help them. And it, it like you get those conductors that like somebody makes a mistake and they glare them down. That doesn't help anybody. Yeah. You know, I, after, after maybe three of the same mistakes, I would go up to the player and say, let's look at this part. And sometimes you say, Oh, the, the part wasn't, um, sorry. Uh, that's fine. New York. Person. Yeah. yeah, I won't be giving him notes today. Oh, <laughs> we, we might we might but, cut uh, that one that part out <laughs> or not. You oh, know, no, we'll it's like part of New York life. Yeah, it's true. But you know what? It is. Maybe that's a good thing to have happened because things happen. Yeah, that's a that's like uncomfortable things happening into the woods too. Yeah, we'll leave we'll and, leave that. Uh, out. <laughs> And I'm thinking, you know, how are you going to deal with that? You yeah. know, somebody would confront that. And there are some personalities that get very defensive and kind of figure out which which battles are important. But also remembering that it's a show or a concert and it's important. I take the work seriously, but I don't think I take myself very seriously. Right. In other words, if if we make a mistake, it's a mistake. But it's not like you don't want to hear a surgeon or a pilot say, oops. Right. You know? Exactly. So it's a little bit different. You know, it's like, let's let's be real here. You know? That's a great it's perspective. Like, let's just do it again. You know? So I think perspective is important. And maybe I've learned some of that as I've accumulated years, you know? Right. But to have a good time and make sure your players, oh, you know, when you get in a pit space or something, make sure your players can hear, they can see, they're comfortable. Otherwise, they can't do what they can, they they do. Make sure your actors are comfortable. If they if it's a dance show and they're in a costume that's not fitting right, they're not going to be able to do their best work. You know, and I'm really collaborative with my sound department uh, because they can d- take all of your work and undo it. Right. They need to know the show better than we do. Yeah, they need to know who's coming in where. I make sure I go through with my sound people the whole show both with actors and orchestrally uh you can ask the sound folks that uh or the students because they have student designers at the north carolina school of the arts and i took my sound person out to lunch and we went right through everything and Hmm. um you know i I think those things are really important you know to make sure we're all on the same page to um tell the same story yeah and we're collaborating it's a collaborative art it's not me and the piano and Chopin. Yeah. You know, no, it's a lot of people in the room and every one of them is important. Yeah. Uh, and that's something I learned from Cheetah Rivera, actually. You know, she would just go after anybody that wasn't 
being treated well. I don't care if you were handing out programs. Everybody in the room is uh, is not just you. You don't use just this or just that. Yeah. And uh, and I never let you know if I'm teaching. My only dirty word is camp. Yep. My actors or musician, I can't. No, no, don't use that word because you will, <laughs> and we'll find a way. Yeah. That we'll get there. We'll we'll discover and your whatever you've learned as a teacher, the yeah. students keep teaching you. That's uh, Hammerstein that said in King and I, by your pupils, you'll be taught. And that's so true because if you pay attention, it's like children. Like I have two girls and they continue to teach me what's important. And if you listen carefully, you can't use the same stock ways. You have to be creative and find a way to get people to understand and take the time. Uh, if, you know, if, if it's not like a one-nighter and you have time, especially as a, a teacher, to take the time with your people to make sure they have what they need. Right. And then, then anything's possible. And isn't that the best? Well, I, I think you revealed why, you know, just through your comments, why people, uh, why pit musicians and actors love working with you. So thank you for those reflections. Um, we, we just have a few minutes left, and I just want to just say for the benefit of the listeners, we haven't really even touched your, most of your career. You've you've had a lot of other Broadway shows. I was looking at, you know, uh, Allegiance, you know, End of the Rainbow, Chicago, oh. Kiss of the... So I may have to get oh, a rain yeah. check to have you come back on a, as a part two sometime down the road. Yeah, and, yeah, that'll have to be a part two because those shows that you named yeah. are all pivotal. You know, Allegiance, we ran four months, but we we all bonded on that show and we miss each other. And because of the Spider Woman was one of the greatest theatrical experiences of my life, you know, yeah. so a secret garden. It's just an honor to do these things. You know, I was so lucky. Right. So happy, happy to do that with you, David. You all know? right. Well, I'll have, yeah. So down the road, we'll get you back on. Uh, and also, um, I guess... Is there any place that people can either find out more about you or follow what you're doing? Um, email me, give me a call. <laughs> you know, um, you know, I'll, I'll get you. Uh, you know, we we have these resumes and stuff like that, but they're just pieces of paper. Right. They, they like list your credits, but they don't tell you anything like the stuff we're talking about. That's more interesting. So, you know, I guess people are interested in those things, but I'm. I'm pretty shy about that stuff, ironically. Um, I mean, it, it was an honor for me, but, you know, there's a lot of great musicians in town, and the fact that I got to be in the room, um, right. it was my good fortune. You know, I was the lucky one in the room. Well, you do know, you have any, I got to learn. Do you have any projects going on now that you can share? Um, uh, I think it's public knowledge now. I'm doing a benefit in the fall with um, an old classmate of mine, Steve Flaherty, Mm -hmm. uh, who people probably know from, you know, his collaboration with Lynn Ahrens. Uh, I music directed their very first show, Lucky Stiff, here at Playwrights Horizon. And, um, but we went to college together. We're honoring Steve at my alma mater at CCM. Yeah. And it's going to be using their orchestra and a lot of the students at CCM and some uh, name people as well that have like, uh, Christy Altamare uh, played uh, Anastasia. She's a CCM grad, and I'm mm -hmm. going to do some things from that. And Ragtime and uh, Susical and their new musical, Knoxville, that they've just written in Sarasota that's just premiering. So we, uh, we might do something from that. Um, 
but uh, we're we're um, yeah, we're going to honor him in the fall, and I'm really excited about that. Um, I usually do. I try to do a lot of outreach work with the Sandy Hook Newtown community. Yeah, uh, it didn't work out this summer um, due to COVID and other scheduling things, but we've done a lot, and, and I I believe in that putting back into the community, you right. know, especially uh, a community that suffered so much because. I, we naively thought, oh, that kind of gun violence won't happen again at the time because it was so awful. And boy, were we wrong. Right. So um, it's, you know, they haven't healed. You know, yeah. how, do, how do you do that when you lose a kid? Right. So and teachers. And so we it's, again, it's into the woods. It's yep. our community responsible. And I believe in that. So, yeah, I'm I'm excited about everything I do. Uh, I don't care if it's a big orchestra thing or working with kids in the community. Yeah, um, it all counts. It's all incredible to do. So yeah, yeah, uh, I love teaching. Uh, you know, anytime like when Scott Ziegler has called me to do something, I say yes first yeah. before I even know what the show is. Mm. I didn't know he was doing Heather's, and I said. But then I said, are you crazy? This thing is really hard. Do you have, I don't think he knew how hard it was. It right. was really hard. I mean, it's challenging for the players, but really hard for students, you know? Right. Uh, that thing is like, it's a, there's the moment and it feels like city on fire from Sweeney Todd, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, that, that was another great experience. I got to, I got to conduct that at a uh, paper mill playhouse with George Hearn, mm-hmm. who had done it on Broadway and Judy Kay. It was great production. And the conductor, by the way, does all those factory whistles? Yeah. Nice. You know, City on fire. Steve actually scored where they were mm. in the score. Nice. <laughs> That's how specific as it was. Yeah. Nice. But now it's, uh, yeah, I, I don't have a website. I should, you know, but I'm the worst at self promotion. I just, you know. Well, so sounds like you're staying yeah. busy regardless. So. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, John Kander always says, someday they're going to find me out, fool them again. You know? yeah. I feel the same way. <laughs> well, um, I'm going to go ahead and just, uh, we're just going to close here. Uh, I know we could keep talking, but uh, well, Jeff, thank you for taking time. And uh, I hope you have a great day and the rest of your week. Oh, thank you. I'm thrilled for you guys. Have so much fun doing that great work. What a, what a great opportunity for players and especially for your audiences, you know? Right. Uh, have so much fun. Okay, David. All right. Thank you. And that wraps up episode number 69 should have episode 70 coming out in exactly two weeks on May 27th. And, uh, I'll be sharing more about that in about a week. As a reminder, if you want to follow what's coming up next, be sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Life in the Pit Pod. You can follow me on Instagram at David Lane Music or on Twitter or Facebook at David M. Lane Music. As always, a special thank you to Mark Perillo for his cover art and to Bill Cisna for providing the introduction to this podcast. The theme music is composed and performed by David Lane. You can find out more about this podcast, leave feedback, or even leave a donation at lifeinthepitpod.com Please rate and review wherever you get your podcasts and please share with your friends. Thank you for listening.